Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Oh, you know, it's just uh it's just a wet, drizzly day. Actually got a a fair amount of rain, got a little over a third of an inch in the past twenty four hours, and uh I needed it, so I know you're dealing with uh sticky black soil out there, so maybe you're ready for a little a little drying out. I know we're all ready for a little bit of sunshine, but it's a good day. It's gonna be a gonna be an outstanding day. Yes, sir. It's uh it's perfect stock show and rodeo weather. <laughs> And you notice that uh, that's all pretty much indoor activities, and uh, it is. And and people who are new to San Antonio, or maybe for whatever reason, just haven't been to the stock show. It's about a whole lot more than animals. It's about agriculture. It's about well, with carnival and all, it's it's kind of fun stuff. But it's a good educational opportunity. I haven't made it down there yet, but usually they have uh, exhibits in the ag tent from beekeepers and uh, all sorts of interesting things. So there, there are lots of lots of good things to do related to the rodeo. Uh, in addition, to some pretty darn good music they have out there. Yes, sir. Just don't wear your good shoes. <laughs> <laughs> anybody that's around livestock learns that very early in their life <laughs> that's for sure hey bob um we were in and out yesterday when you were talking to uh, uh howard garrett and i missed uh, most of of your uh visit with him but i heard a little bit about the uh the azimite being yeah. uh, a fairly good uh micro feed uh in the uh in the growing beds? Well, azomite probably has the widest range of micronutrients uh, in it of any commercially available product. And, of course, that's good for microbes. I'm trying to remember. Uh, Howard might have misspoken and said it's full of microbes. It is not. There, Azomite does not bring any any biological life in and of itself to the soils, but Man, I was visiting their booth in one of the trade shows recently, and they've got a you know a six foot high sign in fairly small print that lists all the micronutrients and all of the beneficial compounds that are found in uh, azomite. And I quite frankly had no idea it was all in there. And uh, it's it's getting to be more widely available, and it's actually available in three different forms. It's available in a real finely powdered form. It's available in a more granular form, and it's available in a molasses coated granular form now. So anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting stuff. I'm starting to experiment with it. Uh, have you used it? Well, uh, yesterday we got a sack from Bright Ideas. I think it's a fifty pounder. Yeah. Uh, micronized is what, uh, yeah. And that just means very, very finely powdered. But, uh, I've been rereading some, uh, tomato writers that I have in my library. Uh huh. And, uh, the one out in California that's been using it for gosh, 40 or 50 years, he recommends a trowel full, uh, in the planting zone. So I'm, I'm just kind of going to guess how much that is. Mm, he must be selling it (laughs) because i think that's probably a lot more than you really need it's it's one of those products i don't think you could overuse it and it is reasonably priced but they're not giving it away and uh 
I would tend to say, you know, if I were going to put it in the bottom of the planting hole, which I will, which I will do this year as I plant tomatoes, at least on a portion of them, but I'd be thinking somewhere more between a teaspoon and a tablespoonful. Okay, well, I'm going to try to hit that in the middle. I'm a good handful, I think, is yeah. where I'm going to end up. Yeah, and I'm not going to. I'm going to go ahead and use my rock phosphate along with it. And uh, you know, as as you well know, and as I'm sure most of our listeners know, just everybody out there has slightly different soils, even in the same area, because it depends on how the soil's been cared for over the years and. Um, so if we could analyze, which we can't, every single garden in the world, we might have very specific recommendations, and they might vary, you know, very widely uh, according to what your soil does or doesn't have. So uh, you being the experimenter that I know you are, um, see if you can take one of those rows and do a little side-by-side test. Do a couple of plants with a teaspoonful, a couple of plants with a tablespoonful, a couple of plants with a good handful, and see what kind of differences you see in the results. Um, because I, uh, I, 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 to me, and of course the trowels come in a lot of different sizes, but I, I, I won't say... You're certainly not going to cause any problems, but I think you're you're overdoing what you really need to go too heavily with it, especially like you and I who have been growing plants in those same beds who have been improving that soil every year for the last however many years. I, I think that's a little bit more than you need, but you know if uh, uh, if you've got it and if you want to use it, I just I guess I'm a I'm a little bit of a miser in that uh, <laughs> I I have a lot of different things I want to spend money on, a lot of different things I want to experiment with, and I I try not to use any more than what gives me the optimum benefits. Kind of like molasses, uh, liquid molasses on the fields. Uh, you can put on a gallon or you can put on twenty gallons per acre. But we find that about five gallons per acre above that, you really don't get a whole lot of increased benefit. And I'm expecting that that's what we'll find with the azomite. There's going to be a uh, Goldilocks number in there somewhere that we could always put on more than that. But uh, it may just not be totally necessary that we do, especially in soils that are fairly good to start out with. Yeah, I think those bags were 50 pounds and it ended up about... Uh, close to a dollar a pound on the on the price. Yeah, so, and I'm not sure which company I'm buying it from. Uh, Adam Supply. I know uh, you know you you deal with Bright Ideas a lot, and Troy and his staff are wonderful, and I want to give them all the support possible. Uh, but there are it is commercially available from Adams now for a wholesale buyer or an ag guy. So uh, if you find you're using a lot of it, you may want to negotiate a little bit better price. Yeah, the reason I do business with uh, Bright Ideas is you can buy onesies and twosies from them. Yeah, yeah. Got to get a case, you know, and sometimes that. Well, on the fifty-pound bags, I think you can buy one bag at a time. But hey, I believe in supporting people that are doing good things, and Bright Ideas has certainly brought some products to the market that we wouldn't have here otherwise. So yeah, I nothing against Troy and his staff, but you know, if you have to buy a hundred bags. Um, sometimes you have to shop for price. I'll just put it that way. Yes. I talked to Troy the other day and quizzed him about the uh, lettuce seed that uh, that I was talking to you guys about. Yeah. The Nevada 
and he's got it at both his stores in San Antonio. Oh, really? The pelletized? No. I'm ah. trying to push him that way, but he, he hasn't got it yet. Just the, the bear seed. There's another outfit, um, High Mowing Seed, that has the pelletized. Okay. But uh, that's we're all talking about. Okay. Well, spe- spell that name for the benefit of all our listeners. Nevada? Yeah. Oh no, no. We know about Nevada, but the other supplier that you were speaking of? It's it's high mowing. High mowing. H i g h m o w i n g. Yes, sir. They're a, a organic seed. Uh, right. And they don't charge shipping on orders over ten dollars. No, oh, very good. It had to be a reason I'm doing business with them. <laughs> well. Again, you know, it's just uh, we should all be supporting the people that are trying to do it right. And, uh, um, you know, it, and it's good to have more than one source. Uh, you know, people, I, I have people ask me when I'm talking about Fanix or whoever else, they say, well, why do you advertise for your competitors? And I tell them, hey, they're not competitors. They're just friends that happen to be in the same business. So that's the way I feel about the seed companies. I I buy a lot from, you know, two or three different companies, and maybe I could buy it all from the same company, but that's kind of putting all your eggs in one basket, and if something happens, something changes with that company, they get bought up by Monsanto, say, you want to have some alternative sources that you can go to. That's a fact. (laughs) And Monsanto sure bought up a lot of seed companies over the past few years. Yeah, the evil empire. Uh Okay, well, we're we're getting a little off on some different tangents. We started out on azomite, and uh, what else is going on? Um, I'm real interested in uh, uh, making my own fertilizer blend. Malcolm had a, oh, he was using uh, fish emulsion, molasses, uh, seaweed, humate, and then... uh, Howard got uh, got to add in the uh, the vinegar, mm-hmm. and now Bendine is producing it in uh, I think gallons, maybe maybe even bigger containers. But I was I was wanting to mix it myself because I use so much of it. Sure. Uh, going online to find uh, prices on fish emulsion, and uh, you can uh, you can get a pretty good deal online mm-hmm. for the two and a half five gallon fish emulsion and. Uh, I was going to be working on that this year, trying to come up with something close to what uh, what Malcolm was doing. Sure. Well, as always, I would encourage you to look for some of the cold-pressed fish products because there's some of them out there that are basically a cooked fish, and um, then there are others that are what they call a cold-pressed that is a different process. And all the research I do and all the experience I've had tells me that the cold-fresh Pressed fish is a very superior fertilizer to what some of these um, hydrolyzed uh, other products that are out there. So, uh, like everything else, uh, there's some variety out there in product. And if you're looking for the best, uh, and I think Alaska makes one of the very good ones. Um, Neptune's Harvest, I think, makes another fairly good one. It's kind of like seaweed. You know, the best seaweeds in the world are the cold water kelps that come. Uh, you know, from up in the Pacific Northwest or maybe even come off the coast of South Africa. But there's there's a real big difference in quality. And uh, 
Uh, and you know that. I just I say these things for the benefit of our other listeners who are thinking, hey, that sounds like a good idea. But uh, you can't just say fish emulsion because you don't always get the right stuff if that's what you're asking for. Well, I, I could uh, tell you what I'd like to do with all those Asian carp they're having a problem with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's turn them all into fertilizer. Uh-huh. I, that sounds fine to me. It just it has to be... Uh, Let's say anything involving dead fish has to be properly packaged or it may become uh, something that you're not going to be anxious to have in your garden, so to speak. Well, the permaculture people say that the, the problem is the answer. So if you've got too many fish, make fertilizers is all I can tell you. That works for me. That works for me. Just don't let my labs get out and roll in it. Okay, well, thanks for taking my call. Hey, you know, it's always a pleasure to visit, James. You get out and enjoy this Sunday. and. Uh, We'll look forward to our next visit. I do appreciate the call this morning. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Pat and then to Paul, Kay, and Linda. Let me punch that button and say good morning, Pat. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have several questions. One of them is about some viburnum Mm -hmm. plants that we have. We have a lot of them along the back fence in our yard, and they're about 10 feet tall. Okay. And... I wanted to know if I could cut those back to about five feet, or will I kill them? And this is Viburnum chindo or Odortismum, one of the big leaf ones? Sandanqua. Wow, that's huge for Sandanqua. They don't usually get more than five or six feet tall. Oh, they're way up there. Some are probably 12 feet. Okay, well, here's the thing about uh, cutting back plants that have gotten very large. It's not how much you cut them back. It's how much of the foliage you take off the plant at any one time. Because the way that plants get rid of water um, is that it is released out through the leaves uh, through a process we call transpiration. And if you take too many of the leaves away all at once, you reduce the plant's ability to get rid of water. Sometimes it just stays too soppy wet and can end up suffering or dying. So you want to try to never take more than 50% of the leaves off of an evergreen shrub at one time. And cutting it back to five feet all at once probably would take a higher percentage of the foliage off. So here's what I do with badly overgrown plants. And by the way, uh, my our first seminar of the season is next Saturday, and it's all about pruning if you want to come see some of this. But uh, I'll use, uh, I had, uh, when I moved up to my ranch, I had some overgrown boxwood that were probably close to 10 feet tall that I wanted back down to about four feet. I went through plant by plant, And those tall stems, I cut half of them back down to about four feet high. And that, you know, that didn't violate my 50% rule. And then I waited about two months. And boxwood are pretty much like viburnum. They're going to re-sprout pretty quickly. When those stems that I had cut back began to sprout out and put on new growth and new leaves, I cut the other half of the tall stems back to that four, four and a half foot height. So in one season, I got them down to the size I wanted, but I didn't do it all in one pruning. Now, a very slow-growing plant, let's say Burford holly or something like that, I might have to wait, you know, a year before I took down the second half of the of the limbs. But um, with something like viburnum suspensum or sandanqua, as it's commonly called, um, you can cut half of it back within a few weeks the portions that you have cut back are going to put on a bunch of new growth at that point you can cut the other half back and you've accomplished what you were trying to do i mean they didn't get out of hand overnight so don't feel like you have to correct it overnight either does that make sense 
Yeah, and I noticed that it seems like the lower branches are the ones that have the most foliage. Oh, well, you're in good shape then. Yeah, um, they're, they're really, and they're blooming, so I can't cut them right now, can I? <laughs> oh, you can cut them. You're going to lose some flowers, but uh, oh, very few okay. people grow sandanqua for the flowers. They grow it because it's tough, it's deer-resistant, and right. uh, pretty pretty darn hardy. Now, they did suffer that early freeze. I saw an awful lot of sandanqua that the top two inches froze back huh. in that late October freeze, but uh, they're a tough plant. I mean, you drive through a deer-infested place like Fair Oaks, they compromise about 80% of the foliage you see out in people's yards. So they're a good plant. But, yeah, uh, we didn't get any. They None of ours froze. Uh, so. You're fortunate. And the biggest problem with these is we have the, some kind of a vine that grows up into through these plants and just winds around the, yep. the limbs, and I have to get <laughs> probably, underneath them. And yep. I don't know what that it's is. It's probably but. called Smilax, S-M-I-L-A-X. There are several different forms. This is not the thorny form. This is the green form, but just yeah. keep cutting it off at ground level. It'll eventually it's, give up. It's terrible. It yep. just almost kills the plant. Uh, I fight it, too. You just need to cut it a little more often. Yeah, okay. And uh, Okay, my second question is we have some live oak trees in our front yard, and when we put them in, we made a big circle around, mm-hmm. around and we've been putting uh, living mulch on there. Yeah. But can I, because we were told we shouldn't cover up the roots. Now, the trees are fully grown now. Can mm-hmm. I cover those roots with gravel or something? Well, it's to... it's not the roots you're worried about. You don't want to bury the trunks with anything, but well, you bury those roots. Uh, don't go over 12, 18 inches deep, obviously. Uh, but if you want to put soil, if you want to put mulch, if you want to put decorative rock, now do not put down any of the so-called weed blocks. Those things are horrible and they will do damage to the soil underneath. But if you want to fill in over those roots with any, you know, the material of your choice, just don't pile it up against the trunk. It's that first six or eight inches out from the trunk that is most critical. As long as you're not burying that, you can bury the rest of the roots as deeply as you want up to a, you know, up to a reasonable point. So, I mean, I can't use the weed block because the weeds, are they come up through the living mulch, you Mm -hmm. know, they just, in there like crazy well weed block cuts off even though it's supposed to let water through it doesn't do a very good job it does not let oxygen through i just i judge i put it down in my garden a couple of times pull it up a year later and the damage to the soil underneath it was just unbelievable mm-hmm. i now use it only where i want to kill everything in an area i put it down for a season pull up and then go mm-hmm. to work revitalizing that soil but black plastic and the woven weed blocks um i i really don't recommend their use mm, okay okay uh, another question is, well, as you know, the acorns have been terrible this year. Or <laughs> from a deer's perspective, they've been wonderful, but there have been lots of them, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. Well, our grass is full of the acorns, mm-hmm. and do I have to get those out of the grass? Absolutely not. Very few of them are going to sprout. Uh, people always think they've got acorns coming up everywhere. Live oaks produce little spruits, sprouts off the root system, but there's absolutely those those acorns are loaded with nutrients. And um, you know, if you want to go through with your mower and chop them up a little bit, I mean, wear wear eye protection when you do so. But there's absolutely no mandate to remove the acorns. And over time, the squirrels, the possums, some of the larger birds, and all sorts of critters will remove a, the majority of them for you. Hmm. So that doesn't keep the grass from growing. Not at all. Not at all. If anything's going to suppress the grass, it's going to be the shade created by those beautiful big trees. 
Okay. Well, that's good to know because I thought I was going to have to get out there with a rake and <laughs> try to get all those out of No, there. ma'am. No, <laughs> indeed. Right. And my last question is um, my granddaughter sent me a bunch of uh, bags to plant, put plants in. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put some tomatoes in them. Uh, what do I put in the what What kind of... Uh, Fertilizer and stuff, do I put in there the same as in the ground? Just the same as you would in the ground and fill those bags with the garden soil, a good quality potting soil. Um, I hope they're pretty good size. Uh, A lot of... This is a combination, you know, so I think I'll probably end end up just using the big ones. Okay, yeah. Maybe put put some herbs in the smaller ones. Herbs or peppers or something that doesn't get, or some of the dwarf or tomato varieties. But, yeah, just use the same thing you would use otherwise. I'd be adding a little bit of granular organic fertilizer before you plant, and then I'd be following it up with liquid organic fertilizer. Okay, and what else do I put in there? I know you've told over many times. With tomatoes especially, when you dig the hole, put a handful of rock phosphate in the bottom and plant your tomato transplant directly on top of that. Okay, right on the bottom. Yeah. And that's the only thing? And some fertilizer? And some fertilizer. That's all on earth you need to use. Oh, okay, that's easy. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, I guess that's all my questions. I well, uh, When you think I of could, more, you I know where to find me. And like I say, our our next Saturday morning seminar, 945, free of charge over at Shades of Green, is all about pruning. If you want to learn more, come on over. It's free. The coffee will be on by 9. Okay, we'll do that. Thanks, Pat. Try to do that. All right, then. Thank you very much. Certainly. Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. Paul's up next. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. Morning, Uh, sir. A couple of quick questions. Um, uh, I believe Esperanza is yellow bells. Is that correct? That is a common name for Esperanza. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I did not cut my Esperanza back this year as per your recommendation to wait to February, but mm-hmm. I noticed that the stalks are already starting to sprout some leaves. Sure. So I assume I shouldn't cut them back at all then. No, you correct? can cut them back anytime you want. The purpose of waiting on Esperanza is in a typical winter. And this is really, when have we ever had typical winters? In many winters, I guess I should say, the Esperanza will freeze back at least partially. When the green growth starts to appear, that tells you how far back they froze. And you can safely assume that anything above the point that the green is coming out is frozen, and you might as well cut it back. Now, ones that did not freeze may be sprouting out at the top, and uh, but you can cut them back to the point that you would like them to begin to come out, whether that's six inches off the ground or six feet off the ground, but do it soon. It's time to do it, but no, no hesitation at all in cutting them back. Okay, and thank you. And the second thing, uh, I can't, I don't know the name of the plant, uh, but it's a common plant that everyone plants out in, in timberwood because of the deer. But it's called spreading, and it's, some of it's upright and has yellow flowers on it. Some has multicolored flowers on it. Probably uh, lantana. Anyway, lantana. That's it. Thank okay. you, sir. Certainly. Um, anyway, uh, I noticed the lantana. Some of it has has died. I hadn't cut that back either. And some of it's got leaves showing up on it. So I assume just if it's living, just leave it alone. And 
I I would I would trim it as you need to to maintain the size. Now there are you know the trailing forms, the purple and the white are your trailing forms. I don't prune them much, and they tend to bloom much earlier in the year. In fact, lots of times they will bloom through the winter months. The more upright forms are are bred from a different species, and I think that uh, it is good to cut them back because most winters you're going to have a lot of that plant freeze mine and bernie freeze to the ground every year but they also come back every year so uh same thing is true you cut them back i would cut them back enough to take all the dead out were they mine i would cut all the live parts back as well just to encourage them to be low and bushy but if you'd like to have them get taller i mean you go to california where they don't freeze they they turn them into small trees they actually make topiaries out of them but uh, again it's the time to do the cutting now and you cut them as much or as little as you would like, but they'll look a lot nicer if you take all the dead out at a minimum. Okay, thank you. Um, the last thing, um, I used Medina Plus on about a 3 by 3 uh, square foot uh, plot of dirt on, okay. a, on a hillside. Um, nothing's been growing there, and the dirt was pretty compacted. Medina mm-hmm. Plus, if I understood correctly, is supposed to help loosen that soil up so something will grow. Well, well go ahead. Go ahead. Medina Plus enhances microbial activity, and the microbes are what loosen the soil. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, in the case of farmers and ranchers that use it, you know, sometimes it takes years to really soften the soil. Um, I will tell you in all honesty, in a, uh, in a spot that size, uh, you would get a lot faster results using a layer of compost along with it or perhaps some dry molasses. Uh, Medina Plus is extremely useful if that place was 30 by 30 or 300 by 300 because it becomes expensive and laborious to you know put out compost and things like that over a large area. And that's why farmers will use it over acreage. But where you've just got a little spot you're trying to improve, use your Medina Plus, but put two inches of compost on top of it, put some dry molasses out as well, and it will speed the process up exponentially. Yeah, it's at about a 50-degree angle, and I put the uh, compost, organic compost, on it last year, and Mm -hmm. the rains kind of washed it away, so I guess I'm just going to have to drag the compost back up. Well, put some of it back up there and go ahead and plant something. Is this a sunny area or a shady area? Uh, It's sunny, but it's right next to the driveway, so I was trying to encourage grass to grow. Yeah, well, I would maybe go with, uh, you know, one of your native grasses or at the very least something like Bermuda, and I, in a small area, I would just go buy some chunks of sod and put over the ground. Fertilize regularly. Go ahead and put your Medina Plus on top of that. But on that severe an angle, uh, you're always going to have erosion. And if you soften the soil very much, it's all going to wash away in the next big rain. So I would go ahead and, and put something to physically hold the soil in place. If this was a highway department, they would use some of those big mats that are impregnated with grass seed. It's not really practical, you know, in a home landscape situation. But I'd go ahead and, uh, and put your grass down and continue the softening process by putting some additional things on top of your grass. If it's a, if it were a large area, I'd tell you to get the grass sawed and then cut it in strips about three inches wide and just kind of do like they do with terraces, just do tiers down 
you know, with, uh, you know, three inches of grass, six inches of soil, three inches of grass, six inches of soil, all the way down the hill. Since it's a small area, I'm probably just going to get the sod and just solid sod it and uh, start, you know, keep working on improving the soil. But you need the grass there to hold things in place while you're doing it. Okay, great. Thanks. Enjoy your show, and I appreciate the information. It's always a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for the call this morning. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Kay and Linda and AJ and Don, and Kay is up first. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. Um, I have some seeds I want to plant. Okay. Can I plant uh, okra seed, uh, cucumber, cantaloupe seeds now, and then plant them out later? Okra I would wait on. Uh, cucumber, cantaloupe, yes, by all means, get those started anytime you're ready because uh, four or five weeks from now when those little transplants are ready to go out, we should be beyond the danger of a hard freeze and should be a good time to plant them. Okra is not a warm weather plant. Okra is a hot weather plant. And I don't plant my okra till probably four to six weeks after I plant tomatoes and peppers and things like that. So I'm going to hold off about another, probably close to another month before I start planting okra seed if I'm going to grow. And an okra goes from transplants just fine. Um, if I'm going to plant okra directly into the garden, I'm, it's probably going to be six or eight weeks before I plant it because it's just uh, it just takes much hotter weather than cantaloupes and cucumbers and tomatoes and things like that do. Okay. What about sweet peas? I need to thin them, I guess. Don't, is that necessary? Not really. Not really. And, uh, you know, it's too late to plant more. But uh, unless they are just, you know, crowded to the point where the stems are touching each other, I just let them be. They let them grow as a thick little clump, and you'll have more beautiful, fragrant flowers than ever. And what should I feed them, Bob? Just some has to grow or you know, one of the liquids from Espoma or Fish Emulsion or Ladybug or any of those good products, any good organic fertilizer, sweet peas will love. Oh, good. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the call this morning. And it's Linda's turn. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I just uh, verified what you said about uh, trees being buried. Uh Uh-huh. I've been staying at a friend of mine's house, and she had her pecan tree uh, about, I guess 16 inches in dirt with a rock wall around that. Mm-hmm. And the tree was starting to lose limbs. It had a lot of new young limbs, uh-huh. but it also had about five dead limbs that were gone. Um, I pulled that dirt out, and I'd say it was about 30% the bark had rotted. Uh-huh. And about above the root zone, say five inches, four inches above the root zone, it was putting out more roots. Okay. What does that mean? That means that uh, those are little fibrous roots, uh, and you might as well cut them off as well. So long as the uh, tree has not been girdled all the way around by having the bark rot away, it will, you know, come out and it will do just fine. But any any roots that appear above where those big roots start flaring out, uh, those are not helpful to the tree, and they can create more problems. So those I would just trim away. You want air circulation around the trunk all the way down to that bigger root flare. Okay. The problems they would cause would be what? Uh, cutting off circulation? Or well, or it just it causes the trunk to rot. And underneath the bark are some vital tissues called phloem. And if the phloem rots, those are the tissues that take the nutrients down to the roots. And if you lose your phloem all the way around, the tree dies. That's about as serious a problem as you can get. 
I meant about those extreme uh, those roots that are sticking out yeah. above the rot zone that came out of the tr- trunk mm-hmm. after it was buried. What problems would those cause if I left them? Um, as long as they're growing straight out, um, uh-huh. you don't have to worry about them creating girdling. But remember that that area where the bark was rotted needs to have air circulation. And if you let those roots above it cover that up to where you don't have air circulation, unless those roots are as big as the roots down below, uh, that's just going to create the same problem all over again by holding too much moisture up against that critical area of the trunk. On a pecan tree or any other hardwood tree, not true of palm trees, but um, the think of it this way, the bark on the roots and on the portion below the root flare is waterproofed, so to speak. The portion of the bark area above does not have those suberins and lignans and pectins and all the things that waterproof the bark. So uh, it's always going to be susceptible to rotting. It, it doesn't have its little water shield around it. So anything that continues to hold moisture, restrict airflow around the trunk is going to continue to cause the tree problems. I'll cut them off. I planted uh, snow peas about three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I haven't been back to look. I don't know whether they're up or not. Was that a good idea or too soon or too No, late? I think you, uh, if anything, you were a week or two later than I would have planted them. But uh, uh, just check them periodically to be sure that they're getting adequate moisture. We've had a lot of drizzly rains, but not much good soaking rain. So go back and check them uh, I suspect that uh, if the weather continues like it is, you'll get a very good crop of snow peas uh, starting in about another four or five weeks. Thanks for your help. I really enjoy your show. I appreciate it, Linda. Thank you so very much. All right, let's get back to gardening here. And uh, we talked to Don and AJ and Alan. That's the order the calls came in. Good morning, Don. Morning, Bob. This is Don down at the vine. Yes, sir. Well, this is the first year I've tried to seed out in a greenhouse. What temperature am I looking at on the medium of the, uh, of the soil that I'm trying to sprout in? What are you trying to sprout? Well, the tomatoes and the peppers. Okay. I'd, I'd be looking at 75. Okay. 75 and 80 is not too much. That's why we frequently use um, the... Um, uh, seedling the propagating mats because that way you don't have to keep the air temperature in your greenhouse so high. It's a soil temper that, temperature that counts, and it's going to be expensive to try to get that greenhouse at 75 or 80 degrees, but the greenhouse could be 60 degrees, but if your soil is 70, 75, which is what your propagating mat will create, then uh, then your seeds are going to sprout real well. Okay, and next question is, is I have to dig up some crepe myrtles that are about 30 or 40 years old that, that remove them and transplant them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. What's the percentage chance they will survive? <laughs> are you willing to spend $1,000 a tree and have somebody with a big tree spade come in and do it for you? Well, I'll be doing it with a backhoe. It, it's tough, and, um, you know, you can do it. My point is, Don, it's is it worth it? Because there are much better crepe myrtle varieties are 
out there today than what were available 40 years ago. Now, if these are some your mom planted, your grandmother planted, they have great, uh, uh, you know, symbolic value to you, then they certainly can be transplanted. What you would need to do is, first of all, take that backhoe and move out about two and a half feet away from the base of the crepe myrtle, dig a trench all the way around the crepe myrtle, and then, you know, tie up that root ball with something. Burlap is what the uh, commercial folks use. Many people will put burlap around it. Then they will wrap chicken wire around it to hold the burlap in place. And then you break that plant loose. Realize we have a plant now that weighs 1,500, 2,000 pounds probably. And the, you lift that out intact without breaking up the roots any further Put it in your new hole, being certain that you don't bury it too deep. And if you're able to do that, you've got probably an 80% chance the, you know, the, the crepe myrtle is going to survive and grow. And if you're willing to put that kind of effort into it, yes, you have a good chance of saving it. But just to get in there with a bucket and, you know, just try to, in effect, pull it out of the ground, put it back in the ground somewhere else, then your chances are going to drop down in the 20% range. So it, it just comes down to how valuable are these and how much does it mean to you uh, to try to save them. Well, the lady I work for, I'm supposed to be able to do everything. <laughs> well, tell her what it will involve, how much of your time it will involve, and therefore how much it will cost her, and then make that decision.